and welcome to Through the Pinard, your conversational podcast talking to midwives around the world about the research they are doing to improve midwifery practice. This research can range from small quality improvement programs and projects to those starting partway through or just finishing their postgraduate studies and to those that have been there, done that and got the t-shirt. So settle back and enjoy the conversation. And remember, you can continue the conversation on Twitter after you finish listening. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, as per usual, can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, uh, I'm Dr. Sally Pizarro from Coventry University. And what is... Okay, so let's go start from the very beginning. Why did you become a midwife? Oh, okay. Uh, well, my uh, brother was born when I was four years old, and I just remember like watching my mum's belly grow and going, "That's amazing! Are you really telling me there's a person growing in there? That's just mind blowing!" Um, and I read her pregnancy book, like cover to cover, like all the pictures, all the like, what it grows like that, it's attached like that, that's how it comes out. Just fascinated. Um, but I actually did my first degree was in drama, theatre with media and popular culture. Because oh, wow. um, I just didn't feel like I was kind of mature enough at 18 to go into midwifery. I probably could have done it. But um, but yeah, so I went off and did that. And then when it came to getting a job, I was like, oh, I don't really want to get a job. I, I want to be a midwife. Um, so I, I started direct entry training because I already had my degree um, uh, and went in that way. Have you found any, or instead of have you found, what have you been able to use from your previous degree in midwifery? Because that's to me, there's actually quite a lot of usage for it. Yeah, well, recently, actually, fairly recently, I've joined the Centre for Arts, Memories and Communities, which is a research centre uh, at Coventry University where they use arts to represent um, people's experiences or arts-based practice to explore experiences. There's a number of ways you can use art in that. And what I'm really interested in is we've done some some work with healthcare professionals exploring their experiences of working during the pandemic uh, and co-creating with them arts-based um, audio pieces. So audio art um, representing their experience. So the first one we co-created was called Boats on an Ocean. Uh, as in, you know, we're, we're all uh, boats on the same ocean, but we're all actually in different boats. It's a different experience for everybody in the same ocean. Um, so, so that's been really successful because people have been listening to that and reflecting on their own practice and students have been using it to kind of um, explore the, the, the kind of notion of workplace compassion and compassionate leadership during this time. So that's one of the ways we've used it. But going forward, I'm really interested in um, documentary dramas and um, using drama and theatre to represent people's experiences um, because we often collect collect people's ideas and, 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 and thoughts and feelings, etc. We do a thematic analysis. We publish that. Great. Mm. But, <laughs> but how are we interpreting it in other ways? How are we um, publishing it in other ways or, or uh, presenting it, showing it um, and making that impact in the world? So, yeah, there's a few ways that we've been doing that and, and we've, um, we've got plans in the future to do more. But so I've really gone back to my, my core <laughs> kind of first degree here at drama, media, popular culture um, and thinking how we might use media, especially to tr- change perceptions um, uh, around midwives, around certain experiences, around the profession. They, those kind of things have been really interesting uh, for me to look at. So, yeah, I've, I've gone kind of full circle and I always thought, oh, that, I'll never use that degree, never. <laughs> and I have, and I'm using it, so that's good. 
Um, and one name kind of pops into my mind is one of our, my dean, graduate dean actually, is um, Tara Brabazon, and she's mm-hmm. very much into popular um, culture and she's very much, she started um, vlogging and doing podcasts like ages uh, before the curve. And one of the things that talking about was um, using different mediums to share that information. And, yeah, we do. We publish journal articles, which are very one format. They're very two-dimensional. You get the emotion only because someone's written it. But if it's written for a journal, then a lot of that emotion is taken out and you actually miss that nuance of the experience that gets given to you in this quote that is supposedly in context. But having an audio to those experiences would be quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting more and more of the idea that your your journal article that you publish should be the launch pad, as in get that out and then launch it. Like, as in, what are you going to do? How are you going to communicate it? Because um, that that's just the peer reviewed evidence, really, on paper. Mm. Um, but but what impact is that going to make, and how is that going to change perception? How are you going to make it accessible to people? And if you're really looking to change policy or practice in some way, you've got to get into the emotions and the the hearts of people who who really need to get it before they'll invest in the change. It's like listening to the old records when they used to do the recording on the old records and you've got a little bit of background static, but you actually have the emotion there. You have the the kind of the emotion of the letters home that you used to be able to do a recording on a record at in the early kind of like 1900s. And it was, you, to hear them now, it's quite amazing because you get that whole presentation of all their emotion that they're speaking about in this letter home whereas you don't get that when you're reading something yeah they've done it quite a lot in um in history in terms of bringing world war one and two letters alive um and and it's been really powerful and it's brought a new life to them and a new understanding um which is really important so so yeah arts-based practice in in the healthcare and midwifery research is actually you know more of a gelling than you think and they're doing it a lot in dementia care and keeping memories for dementia. So it's quite interesting changing it and then putting it into the midwifery side of it and mm-hmm. kind of putting it to the other side because it could be useful for both almost like the ethnographic capturing of midwifery history but also the day-to-day telling and keeping a, a, an audio journal instead of a written journal that you can kind yeah. of then go back and listen to. And I think for students in particular it would be quite interesting because they can record themselves. Yeah, reflective practice, yeah. Yeah, and then see how they change, especially over those three kind of three to four years of them yeah. starting and then finding their feet again. That's a PhD in itself, I think. It is. I think that would be quite a fascinating PhD. So anyone listening who wants that idea, thank you. would like to talk to you when you're doing it. Um, yeah. So then you got into that. So what was your first postgraduate qualification area? Uh, I, I did a master's degree in leadership for health and social care. So I was really interested in leading people um, and it basically empowering people. I'm really into kind of investing in midwives, you know, passing things down, bringing people with you, um, sharing knowledge, etc. cetera. Uh, and really, uh, you, you know, you never go anywhere on your own. You're always part of a team in some sense. So I was really interested in learning about leadership, understanding leadership and how I could do that to bring people with me into new areas and new ways of thinking and new ways of doing in midwifery. Um, and so that was my first kind of area. And I looked into social media there and how social media could be used, um, again, to communicate, disseminate, empower people 
etc um and so yeah that was my my first kind of journey into uh postgraduate and I always kind of thought well um I've always been curious so I always knew I wanted to do everything and I also think I'm quite immature so I never really wanted to leave school um (laughs) there's nothing wrong with constantly learning (laughs) so yeah I think I think that was it as well and also I think we've talked we were talking about this before you know you kept saying why are we doing this why are we doing this why can't we do that why can't we do that and the answer was always well what's the evidence for that what's the evidence for that where's the evidence I was like blooming out I'm never going to get anything done unless I do some get some evidence because that seems to be the the crux of everything and yes we're evidence-based practitioners so it should uh, uh, you know utterly be that way so so that was the kind of reason I um I was interested in doing research um applied research as well so problem focused solutions focused um challenge led really rather than just a curiosity oh I wonder about that it was look there's a problem here (laughs) we can we can do something about this if we only explored this or or looked at that or co-created something together so so that was what kind of drove me into to further academia and things and I think to be honest every single midwife could come up with about a list of at least five things that they would want to be able to change in the area that they work on without thinking too hard yeah absolutely it's kind of getting to to encourage people to step up and actually be the ones who actually make that change um, yeah. or work with people to make that change. So where did you go? So what type of leadership then should we be having in midwifery to make changes in the future or to keep people in? Because retention is also a big issue. Of course, yeah. And that's a, the, the massive area of my, my work, really, workforce research and looking at how we care for midwives and the well-being of midwives, etc. And we did uh, some work uh, a couple of years ago now on workplace compassion, what shows workplace compassion, um, because people need compassionate compassion at all times but especially in pandemic times you know that compassionate leadership is really key so when I was talking to people about compassion and we need to be more compassionate to each other and why do we kind of seek to destroy sometimes and and bullying so rife etc and um, people said well what do you mean by compassion what's workplace compassion what does that even mean so we did a a study on twitter where we asked people to use the hashtag what shows workplace compassion and asked us to ask them to tell us what showed what they thought showed workplace compassion so so that was really interesting to see what other people felt workplace compassion was um, and then after my master's, I've just actually finished the Oxford said business school leadership program. Oh, cool! Um, and because I was interested even more into how can we embed compassionate leadership in in this, and I really wanted to learn from a business school different perspective. You know, you can't just stay in midwifery; you've got to get different perspectives oh, from other areas. Bring it in, absolutely. That's it. You can't stay siloed. So um, it was really cool to be able to talk to other people about compassionate leadership and how that would translate, how that would look um and and how we can move forward with that and there's also the kind of universities networks out there that are looking to to see how we can make universities more compassionate mm-hmm. um, acad- academia more compassionate um so it really does go across the board about uh, you know really getting on a level with people and being compassionate and seeing them as people as humans as as, as almost family members in terms of like you know yes you come to work every day but th- that's not just you you know you've got a family what's going on with you are you well can we care for you um can we be compassionate toward your need right now uh, and really listen to you and help you um 
and basically go on that personal level to ensure people are treated compassionately and led compassionately um and you know they're more likely to follow someone or um an idea or get get emboldened by someone who does does reach them on that compassionate level yeah and yeah. i think the and i keep forgetting his name and i really shouldn't because he's right in front the virgin founder um he made a comment i don't know why i'm having a mental blank for his name at the moment richard branson yeah that's the guy um okay. don't know just mental blank um i think he made a quote that train train your staff so that they could leave but treat them well enough they don't want to yeah and it was that kind of because i think that quite often in academia and in healthcare we're quite hypocritical where we'll kind of consider the the life circumstances of students or of patients and the women we're working with but we don't do it to colleagues and we don't do it to the staff and so Absolutely. whereas we're teaching our students or we're role modeling what we should be doing we're actually not living it and kind of our employers it doesn't feel like they're actually living it as well yeah i mean the whole reason i do midwifery workforce research is because you know there's so many other researchers out there doing amazing work in like breech birth cesarean birth uh, water birth improving birth um and, it, and it's all kind of focused on people and families having babies which is great however my my kind of angle is if you don't get the midwives taken care of none of that can occur because you could do all the fancy pants research in those areas but if you haven't got the workforce to actually um deliver the the care that's or deliver the change that's been evidenced then it's none none of it's going to happen so you have to put midwives first um and i have to do all the workforce research before i can go into anything else because there's still way too many problems to fix there that that is going to impact on all the other great stuff so that's why really i focus there especially when kind of talking about bullying and things like that because that's a historical problem which is still happening and i think in some places getting worse and yet we know that recruitment and retention is a major issue. And it's yeah. been a major issue for decades. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is. Um, and like I say, I, I'm actually, you know, working in, weirdly in a nursing team at the moment. I'm working with nurses. Um, <laughs> I work with midwives too, but uh, but I'm actually in a nursing team. And, um, that you know, it's it's it's... I'm actually working in a really nice team now where I don't see bullying, but I know very well it still exists. And especially with the research I do, um, people people tell me their stories all the time. And I've been treated horrendously in the past by by people who I who I thought might help pull me up and actually try to push me down. Um, so so I completely get it. Uh, but but you know we need to support midwives in recovery as well from from what's just been going on and support them going uh, going forward and um, part of my work now you know another role I have is I, I'm a panelist for the nursing midwifery council mm -hmm. so so we see cases coming through um you know day by day week by week um and so I see kind of firsthand the problems in practice um for midwives and nurses coming through and some of them are just just really broken and some of the systems are really broken and you're really looking at the wider context in a lot of cases. It's not just one person that something's happened with. It's um, much, much wider than that. Uh, and the systems, you can see in so many places, they need kind of fixing um, in a lot of ways. So my, my PhD actually focused on, you know, how can... Uh, how can we kind of support midwives in a confidential and anonymous way? Because a lot of them felt like they couldn't say anything. They were letting mm. letting things go 
go way too far until it got to an NMC hearing, which, you know, honestly, it would be much better, surely, to, to, to fix things right at the right at the start of the problem or even be preventative, if possible, mm. in stopping it happening in the first place, whatever, it, you know, ill health someone has or, or you know, a culmination of things that results in an error or, you know, any any of those things, if we can be preventative, that that's far better than actually getting to that point. Um, so a lot of people were, were kind of, you know, talking about, you know, we're just supposed to give above and beyond, go above and beyond. And we give awards out for that, don't we? Mm-hmm. We give awards out for going above and beyond, not just yep. doing your job. You get awarded for doing more, doing extra, yeah. doing more than what you paid for. <laughs> so, um, so there was that kind of culture breeding out, you know, the mistakes, you know, there has to be a blame culture. You can't be a whistleblower. We have to put, you know, those kind of mistakes can't be talked about. Um, and, and, you know, if you're ill, you know, you're letting the team down. So don't go yep. off sick. And if you go, go off sick, you could be disciplined for it. You could lose your job and be punished for being sick. So don't be sick. Um, <laughs> and all these kind of things going on. That's a big thing that we're hearing stories about, especially with the pandemic, mm. is that we're hearing stories from kind of various countries and various areas and various occupations. But even in the healthcare, we've, we've, we're hearing stories that people are being told that, it doesn't matter that you've been told to quarantine, you're coming to work, we need you, we're short-staffed. Or it doesn't matter, you've only got a sniffle, it doesn't matter, it's not the full thing, you're still able to work, you need to kind of come in. Or if you have more than two days off sick, then you're going to lose your job. Yeah, And that's just, that kind of adds to the, the bigger issue. Yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, my my uh, PhD looked at an, uh, an, what would an anonymous confidential online um so, like reporting system or support system looked like because online you can be anonymous you can be confidential there's no consequences to asking for help you just get it or no consequences for whistleblowing or accessing help um all of those kind of things uh so so that's what I looked out there and um post PhD I mean I had some time out with maternity leave having my daughter and things but um but now I'm actually trying to find my niche area if you like which no one's looked into before and that is um substance use midwives using Mm. substances to cope and it's interesting because um joy kemp who looks at global midwifery with the royal college of midwives she did a presentation recently really interesting on you know her global focus on midwifery really fascinating stuff and she said about um the women we care for and their families using substances in some war-torn countries and all different areas. Obviously, we deal with it everywhere. Um, but she said it's not just uh, the women here. It's also the midwives. Contextually, she'd experienced that in other countries. Um, and so I'm looking at it in a UK context at the moment um, with a team with with a team of researchers. Um, but I think there's, there's possibilities we could look globally at this. Um, and it's never been looked at before. Never. That's interesting because I, I know that we've kind of anecdotally but also previous reports, and I must admit I keep saying it too, is that one of the highest uses of drugs and alcohol use is in the healthcare because it's used as a way to de-stress. Between the healthcare and military and first responders, I think there's the highest use of drugs and alcohol, both prescription drink, drugs and um, in particular and non-prescription drugs. But it's interesting that that hasn't been looked at specifically. Well, it's been looked at in uh, physicians, in dentists, in, in doctors, in anaesthetists, and a, a lot in nurses in America, where they, mm. they tend to have opioid um, issues yeah. and prescription painkiller 
um, issues that that are contextually rele- more relevant in that area. Um, but when we did our literature review last year, we found very very little on on midwives, and um, there was kind of a paper on student midwives. But I mean, students living the university life. It's, it's slightly different to to what you would think of in terms of the burnout or the coping with the job stuff. Um, uh, and where where they did look at midwives, it was kind of the midwives were mixed in with the nurses. So you couldn't really work out who were the midwives, who were the nurses. The, the data was all together. Um, and so you couldn't really tease apart what was going on other than um, some midwives, we, we, you know, were kind of involved in this in some, some way. Um, but there, there was a study where people, um, all um, researchers looked at the data of NMC cases, the types of NMC cases that were coming through and how many related to drugs and alcohol. And I think it's, you know, uh, you know, late teens, mid-teens um, there. So it's quite a high number, really, of, of cases coming th- that were coming through at that time. And I certainly see it now very frequently coming through. And we're literally just revising um, a paper at the moment our first paper where we 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 have the responses of 623 uh, UK midwives and their substance use or not you know they told us um, how much if when whatever um, anonymously and the results of that like I say should be published very soon and we'll be presenting them at conference in uh, later this month Um, but that I think is going to be quite a shocker for some people reading reading our results but it's the start of something maybe it'll confirm what people are actually just thinking well I don't know but it's the start of something where you know what if we don't look at this if we don't unearth it in some way then then it just continues if we don't address it it's happening so let's let's kind of address it in some way so did the the participants contextualize their use of substance use so I put it like were you able to because it would be really interesting to see if they were using it more because they had high levels of workplace stress or moral distress or kind of like we'd already gone into that PTSD kind of symptomology or if it was outside did they actually get to contextualize that well we this is a first exploratory study so we asked them what were their reasons okay. for using substances if they did have problematic substance use what what did this why like why did this occur what happened kind of thing and that was an open response so they could kind of put a one word thing or a whole ream of story about how how it began and why etc and so we've had themes come out of that which which we're publishing like I say soon um but all kind of work related um needing to escape you know, bullying, all the, all the stuff you'd expect. There's not going to be anything. If you know about this, the workforce research, it, a lot of it will confirm what you already think. But interestingly, we started collecting that data at the beginning of 2020 and lockdown happened March, 20, well, you know, mid-March. Yeah. Um, so we actually stopped data collection early. We could have hopefully got a lot more participants. But, you know, we thought with lockdown happening and the pandemic, our results were just going to be all over the place you know there's that it's too much of an intervention coming in but we on March 20th this year one year later we um, started collecting data f- again for the comparison Ooh. so unfortunately not nearly as many of people have been completing this survey as they did the last time I presume that's because everybody's ridiculously busy and, and 
and kind of just swamped. But also there's so many surveys out there at the moment asking midwives this, that and the other. It's probably a lot of survey fatigue. Um, but what we're really looking to do is get as many midwives as possible to complete this survey again. So this survey we've got out now so that we can compare what's changed um, from before the pandemic to now in terms of substance use. Because anecdotally, again, people have been saying, oh, you know, just going to the, the off license on the way home every night has just become a thing. Um, and also there's lots of academic papers published saying, you know, that healthcare workers will be at higher risk of problematic substance use mm. more so following or during the pandemic so we want to capture that for midwives and make sure midwives don't get left out like they often are the add-on or the mixed in data or whatever we want to look at our profession um in, in a nuanced way so that's kind of what, what we're promoting at the moment so um yeah anyone listening to this podcast please do fill out the survey i did and i, I think i shared it um through the through the, the pinard twitter handle i think i kind oh, great. of tweet after i saw it in fact before i actually caught up with you for this interview so that was kind of quite kind of like spooky because i saw that uh -huh. and i kind of went oh yeah we need to share because this is kind of important information to to have something fixed to have an idea of where it is because when we look at yeah the moral distress i think is a big thing that people are feeling in that they're trying to do what they can do around the continuity of care but the workplace that they're living, they're working in or the model of, of where they're working in doesn't allow that or the pressures, the staffing levels or all the other kind of outside things are stopping them from doing that. So they're struggling even more. And I think, and I haven't looked in the research and I do need to do this, is to look at what the rate of our new graduates leaving because I think that from what I have read is the attrition rate in five years of postgraduate is actually quite high for our young and we need those people to stay around for all us oldies when we finally leave yeah I mean again the work of Jill Mayburn who's um, a, pro a professor of nursing workforce research and an amazing person her PhD focused on following student nurses um, and saying you know why are you joining the profession capturing that like oh you want to change the world you want to be an amazing nurse etc uh, and then followed them and kind of said okay five years down the line did you manage to realize your dream are you doing what you wanted to do is everything as you dreamed it would be this mm -hmm. magical place and they just uh, you know they just were like no it's gone magic's gone I've either left or disengaged. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, the same work I don't believe has been done on midwives. So that could be another PhD. We're going well for PhD ideas. That's the second one. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so let's go back to your PhD on workforce. Okay. Yeah. So what was the thing that triggered you? And then what did you do for your actual PhD in exploring it? And exploring, well, I got very poorly myself uh, working clinically and um, came out of that thinking you know I just need to I was just so kind of wanting to make it different from someone else because I'd had such a horrible experience and I just was like this can't this can't happen to us anyone else you know someone else has got to kind of be cared for <laughs> compassionately um rather than you know treated like a failure and a um you know a bad person and all this stuff and I just thought, no, this has got to change. So I, I kind of tried to think about, you know, what would have helped me kind of um, seek help or reached out or got better or done things differently. And it was, you know, I couldn't talk. I found it so difficult to, to verbalise what was happening. And I got two health diagnoses um, 
following you know a, a real crash and burn situation so um so I find but I find it really difficult to to verbalize how I was feeling talk about how I was feeling I couldn't I didn't have the insight to see how poorly I was either mm-hmm. which was a real problem I didn't see it myself I didn't have the tools didn't have the support etc and but I thought to myself well I would have I could have I could have typed it I could have written it to someone I could have typed a letter I could have done that if it wouldn't if the words wouldn't come out my mouth I could potentially have written it down but the consequences of people knowing who I was and knowing it was me I just couldn't grapple with so that's where I thought right perhaps we need to look at something online here and giving people that anonymity and that confidentiality because it's better everyone says no you should be open and honest and all this and I'm saying well yeah ideally um but 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 realistically when people get treated like dirt or get treated poorly they're not going to do that Mm. so so you've got to change the culture compassionate leadership coming in to make sure that people are feeling able to 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 talk and and be understood um and then you've got to have the the place for them to go for help which just isn't really there like they can't go to their gp in the same way a lot of the times you know uh, if they're having mental health problems because they they fear getting referred to the nmc Mm -hmm. fitness to practice so there's that to to deal with um and claire gerarda she set up a practitioner health program for doctors who are dealing with mental health issues addiction issues etc nothing like that exists for midwives at all um and so it's really difficult to find places to go and like i say when we're publishing our paper, you know, in a few weeks' time, we asked people what were their views on people who use substance, who on midwives who use substances to cope, and the majority were compassionate, saying, "Oh, you know, that's clearly a behavioural issue, you know, behavioural symptom of ill health. They're so poorly, they need help, they need medical attention." But there were, you know, a good few, a good few people just saying, "Well, it's their own fault, their own mistake. You know, they need to get struck off." Uh, and so I'm just like, you know, who is going to ask for help with that kind of attitude out there? It just perpetuates the problem and actually is risky. It perpetuates the risk to patients and, mm. and the public. Um, so those views and attitudes are dangerous, um, but they exist. Uh, they're out there and they need addressing. And going back to my earlier idea of using arts-based practice, I think there's some interesting work to be done there where we could perhaps change some perspectives Um to, to increase help seeking behaviours because mm. no one's going to seek help or go to go to a midwife with that kind of attitude, are they? Mm. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and I think that's because people have come up with those barriers or with those attitudes that actually exacerbates the program the problem because yeah. they kind of maybe start mentioning it to someone, they get slammed down, and they kind of go, "Well, I'm not going to mention that again because it is my fault, and I can't get out of it." So then it makes it that deeper hole to kind of get out of it again yeah and we know the risks of practicing while you're not fit to do so you're not fit to work you know you're more like to make a mistake patient care isn't as good etc etc so yeah those kind of views and attitudes pose a danger to midwifery and and the public in my view and and I'd love to use arts-based practice to change them so are you looking at as a a peer-to-peer kind of program or an option as well or coming in from purely from a psychologist um, well, point of view? Well, interestingly, when I uh, did my PhD, I did a Delphi study. So the Delphi study was basically asking people, for co- like a group of experts, for consensus on what should be included 
within um, an online intervention. So we've got that to work from. But what what I'd actually like to do going forward is co-create an intervention of support. Mm -hmm. So we come together with psychologists, uh, medical practitioners, people with lived experience, um, someone from the NMC regulation, someone from, uh, you know, RCM workforce, all of these kind of people get them together to co-create something. So that's that's hopefully the plan for the future. Have you had much um, dialogue with veterans groups? Because a lot of the, I know from here and I'm involved in, in one in particular, it's a peer-to-peer support program in veterans because one of the things that they've found is that these kind of programs that give them tools, coping tools, give them another way of thinking and the, the Trojans trek that I'm involved in, they take them out bush for a week, cut them away from all technology, and that's a lot of talking and experiences. It's not a physical trek, it's more of a, a trek of the mind. But they found that they the post responses from that has helped decrease with substance use. So the veteran side might be able to also give you some interesting input as well. Yeah, absolutely. My PhD student at the moment is looking at, um, you know, workplace compassion and looking at the experiences of ICU nurses and, she, uh, you know, during the pandemic. And, and she's definitely seen lots of value in in looking at veterans group. And I certainly did do my PhD uh, looking at in, in that way. Looking at peer to peer support with midwives is difficult. The same with professional midwifery advocates in that if you are registered midwife supporting somebody and they disclose something that needs escalation or needs you know demonstrates that they're not fit to practice you have a duty to refer them to the regulator so the issue is can people really be as open and as honest and as um you know as candid as possible with you without that fear again of retribution and also you as a you know if you're a midwife registered midwife wanting to help someone you yourself don't necessarily want to be put in a position where you're trying to help someone, but you have to refer them to the regulator. Um, Although everyone has to protect the public, it's a really kind of ethical dilemma um, where we're thinking, is it better to just have that anonymity and and confidentiality again, like almost an amnesty, Mm. um, just because it's better overall to get to the bottom of the problem and fix it rather than no one talk about it and it carry on. So there's that to talk about. And I spoke to Claire Girarda again about that with her doctors. I said, you know, you're a registered doctor. You're in the same predicament. What do you do if someone is practicing um, under the influence or or with a severe mental health problem that's being unmanaged? Any of those things, what do you do? And she says, well, it is a really difficult situation. But what she tends to do is get them better first, as in a first line treatment. option and then she will will get them to self-refer to the GMC with a few clear urine samples so they say retrospectively I've had this issue I've been to get help I've sought help here's my clean urine sample Um, I've I've addressed this issue or I'm addressing it Um, can you please you know help me to get back on 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 track so I was like that's actually a really good way of of doing things um, I like that model. I like that approach. But obviously, sometimes there will be people that will carry on working, won't be able to admit it or whatever. And then, of course, she she's forced to yeah. to take action then because you do have to protect the public. Um, but it all depends on the person, I guess, as to how insightful they are um, of their own actions and impacts on on patients and the public. Uh, but it's really it's really tricky. It's extremely tricky, and and 
one would hope that if someone has kind of like contacted, they've got some insight that they have an issue that needs addressing or talking to that then can go, well, here's the steps that we do, here's the process that we do. And then if you kind of like pull out and you don't, yeah, it is that very ethical kind of because we are bound by mandatory reporting. Yeah, it's it's really difficult. And I admire Claire Girardot so much because she's, um, she's obviously a doctor and doctors can give medical care. Midwives give midwifery care. Mm. So she's, she's been able to set up an entire clinic to support her profession. And I wish I could do the same, but I'm, I'm not an addiction specialist. I'm not a... <laughs> Uh, I, I'm not a doc, you know, a medical doctor. So, um, so I like the idea of co-creation and, and going ahead. Again, finance is a problem because um, there's so many uh, nurses and midwives on the register that having one space open for everybody is just so expensive. But I think there's other things we can do. So I'm looking forward to taking taking that work um, forward with me for the next few years, hopefully. Oh, I think you've definitely got enough to keep you busy for more than a few few years. I was going to say, but it's exciting because because no one is kind of looking at the substance use angle. No. I know we've got a nursing midwifery um, phone line here that is you can call up and they've got nurses and midwives who um, are on the other end of the phone for, that can do some counselling. Um, but I don't think, I think it's just for counselling, for they can you know, talk about any issue, but it's not purely for substance use. And it's interesting because, yeah, that would be confidential unless they recognise the voice or something, but, but that's one way of doing things. I did talk to another psychologist who does workplace um, sort of public health work, so talking to employees, you know, healthcare staff about healthy eating, exercise, good sleep, shift work, management, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she said to me, do you know what, I've never, ever seen in any of those programmes anything to do with substance use. Um, and of course, if you were if you were helping your staff with weight, you'd perhaps weigh them, perhaps, and then then give the uh, the advice on healthy eating, sleeping, exercise, etc., and then uh, monitor their progress or help them get their weight down by weighing them. And and she she said, I guess the reason we don't do it with substance use is because if you <laughs> if you tested all your staff for substance use at the beginning of um, the program, you may well lose a lot of them. Um, uh, and so we can't afford to lose our staff, so we don't even go there because it, if we go there, we can't come out of there. Um, but then someone else was talking to me, interestingly, about like oil rig workers and, and other workers who were just given mandatory um, drug tests, random screening. Yeah. And whether that was something that, that could be used to um, to manage the situation and also kind of identify people in need of support. We, we have it with the fly-in, fly-outs in the mines. They have to um, they have to have their uh, testing, I think, before once they've had their days off and they kind of go back into the mines, they actually have to have a negative test before they can actually go on site. And if they've got anything positive, I think they can only have one minor positive. And if they have two, then they're actually kicked off. They're, they lose their job because it comes wow. down to safety. Well, yeah, I mean, it comes down to safety here too, but um, also I'm thinking about the midwives' well-being in terms of not just identifying to kick them out of the job, but identifying to give them support. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what I'd really like to see. And a big concern for those who are on call as well, because if you're at that level of distress that you're using substances when you're on call and you get called in, then that's a little bit different than if you've got a day off and that you're kind of then using substances on that day off. 
Well, ultimately, it's a health issue, uh, no matter when it's happening. It's just how and when the change, the risk to the public has changed, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, but it's still the public perception of, of midwives that's really important, public trust, etc. Um, and, and sort of being able to look after your own health and having that insight. It's just it's just such an interesting topic that I, I'm looking forward to kind of dedicating my time to. I think that each person's individual definition of what problematic substance use would be varied as well. Yeah, I mean, we use the TAPS two, uh, TAPS one and two tools, which do diagnose problematic substance use um, by scoring system. So it was a scoring system we used. But yes, um, I've had people say to me, "Do you know what? Since I'd never thought my my substance use was problematic until you until I read your literature review, um, and, and then that impact was they actually reflected and said, actually, it's you know I am I do have problematic substance use here, and um, I, I shouldn't be doing that while I'm on call or X Y Z, um, and then I've spoken to older midwives who said, oh, we used to have a glass of wine when we were on call it was never a bother you'd just go um and then like the, the views on that obviously now are, are very different um right. so it yeah so it's it's just interesting to talking to people in general getting that story together to really understand the context behind the stats and i think that that kind of positive effect goes back to what you were saying that the published article is your starting point that's your one kind of like here's the academic version of it now let's kind of do some podcasts let's do some kind of like daytime tv or even just a chat with midwifery kind of related and that's where and that's why I love conferences and I love presentations because you then get that little bit of extra kind of emotion and energy behind that concept that does make you think yeah, the, the article should always be the launch pad to do uh, to, to to engage people in the research. It's, otherwise, it just sits there on a shelf. You've really got to kind of get people included in this. And with such impactful results that we're going to have, it does lend itself so much to media and drama and those kind of things because um, it's real, people's real stories, people's real experiences are just so powerful. Now, I'm just having – I haven't caught up with all of Call the Midwife but I do remember that in one of the early sessions, Trixie was having a drinking issue with that, but she's obviously still on the show, so they obviously did deal with it. Yes, and also people have pointed me towards Nurse Jackie. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, Yeah, very much substance use. Very much (laughs) substance use. I remember that beginning of that show, yes. Yeah, so people have pointed me to those kind of dramas, and and also you've got, if you watched, um, oh, Oh, what's the guy in the show? Completely lost it now. The the doc who is a Brit guy who went to America. House. Yeah. So Dr. House. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so um, him the whole way through addiction to pain meds, um, but being like the brilliant mind that he was. Um, so, so it's there. People know it exists. But uh, like I say, the research has mainly focused so far on, on doctors, physicians, mm. dentists, etc. Um, nurses in some contexts. Um, and uh, and now hopefully I'm going to be groundbreaking with midwifery. Well, see, I think I've just come up with our third PhD idea, is okay. you do an analysis on <laughs> healthcare-based shows, because I'm just thinking of MASH as well. They had the still, um, and they were continuously drinking. You could actually do an interesting analysis of midwifery, nursing and medical shows and look at the substance use and how it's actually 
deemed acceptable in a lot of shows. Yeah, well, that that goes really into public perception, like what the public are willing to kind of tolerate versus not. Because um, when I asked about perceptions of impairment from mid from midwives, the the tolerance might be different. Like, oh no, we can't tolerate that at all. Oh. Whereas the public might say, do you know what they're human? Or you know, it could be the other way around. It's really interesting to see how we perceive ourselves as a profession, as opposed to how the the public perceives us as a profession. Um, and is that the public at large, or is that certain? people certain groups of the public um and how does that map because you're right you know it's, it's acceptable as a thing that goes on um, but if you were going to come into um, a unit and have your baby or have an operation or whatever it was um it, you know your perception may well <laughs> change at that point yeah I think winter um and it's one of the great examples one of the reasons why I hate codrill um advertising because codrill is a cold and flu tablet here and their advertising is so drawn, is that you take their drug, it reduces the symptoms, and then you can keep on working. Though, interestingly enough, I did see the other night they had a disclaimer on that says, if you are feeling sick, stay, do not go to work, stay home. Because it's that in winter, people can drug up on cold and flu yeah. tablets that they think are perfectly legal, are perfectly fine because they can't take the time off, they haven't got enough sick days, or they're already kind of understaffed, there's this pressure that we spoke about earlier about going to work, but yeah. they're actually under the influence of medication that can affect their thinking and their judgment. Yeah. But it's a cold and flu yeah. tablet, so they don't think it's actually substance use in that way. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because substances are really good and you, you might need to use substances at work, you know, like <laughs> it's not all bad. It's yeah. whether it, it's what you, whether you're using them as they're prescribed mm. or um, or legally, et cetera, that, that, that kind of breaches that that gap. But I'm sure there's a book coming as well. I'm sure there's a book coming I need to write. That would be interesting. I mean, a lot of people use caffeine, obviously, and can overuse caffeine, but I think since Red Bull and all that stuff has come out, that kind of gets used quite often at 4 o'clock in the morning for a night shift to kind of push yeah. through that kind of like brick wall that comes out to you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's fascinating and I hope the, the listeners of this podcast will find it interesting too. Oh, I'm sure. And depending on, you'll probably be a bit two month delay between when we're talking now to when this kind of comes out, um, releasing. So if your paper is out by then, I will mm -hmm. link it in. Otherwise, um, I'll link in your ResearchGate page, which actually has all your publications in. Yeah, and also the the, um, the survey is going to be open to at least the end of September for people to um, to complete. So it'd be really great if you could share that as well. I will. I'll link in that survey um, link again when we kind of post this because that will make people remind and hopefully you'll get a sudden influx after it's released. Yeah. So you stated that you had some issues that kind of got you to look at this. So when you were doing your PhD, how were you looking after yourself? Um, I think I really found solace in writing and focusing my thinking. Um, if I, you know, if I wasn't focused on on research, etc., my, my my thoughts tend to race and I tend to ruminate quite a lot. Um, so that's my biggest problem. Uh, I suffer quite a lot with anxiety as well. Um, but it, but I try and channel it. So if I'm feeling anxious or if I'm feeling um, hyper, then I kind of go right. I need to, I need to channel this so it doesn't just sit in my head or sit wherever. Um, so I tended to uh, write, just write and write and write and publish and. <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> blog and do all of that. Just just channel it in a in a positive way. And also, you've got to remember that my well, I think this is for, true for a lot of people. My best thoughts or ideas or whatever they don't actually come to me when I'm working as such. They will come to me in the shower or oh, yes. out on, out on a walk or yeah. um, having a cup of tea with a friend or whatever so you have to make headspace for that if you really want the ideas to flow and you really want eureka moments to to appear um so you have to build in you know that kind of time um in terms of your thinking um to to ensure that you're not just getting bogged down with seeing the paper in front of you and and can't see the wood for the trees so i did that quite a lot um and 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 talking to people just reaching out and talking to people validating your ideas is really key so if you've had an idea talk about it with other people they'll let you know pretty quickly if it's a a rubbish one or a good one um and don't stay in your silo like I said it it was really important to me that I didn't just stay with midwives I didn't just stay with nurses you know I branched out working with psychologists and you know we've been doing some some work around you know trans, trans people birthing um so we've been working with the equality network um and we've really reached out to a lot of different people which has just brought a different perspective to things um and it's really enriched my work and um enriched my thinking and ideas have really grown when I've heard new perspectives so I think that's really important it also helps you become more appreciative of your own expertise because in a room full of lots of different professions I'm the only midwife usually so I feel quite you know that's my area of expertise and then that comes together with your area of expertise and then that's the the richness it brings and and people respect you for what you bring you respect respect people for what they bring and and it's actually quite a confidence booster when you realize that the specialist knowledge you you've developed as a, as a midwife either academically clinically whatever is really quite special and that's that's really kind of a boost and so were you doing your phd full-time or part-time I won a scholarship, so um, it was full-time PhD for me, and I was doing that alongside lecturing at the time, which was interesting. Yeah. That's one way of explaining it. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of lecturing here and there, but yeah, um, yeah, I I was doing it full-time, and I needed that focus after, you know, in recovery, uh, and when I was getting diagnosed and getting my treatments right and everything, it really helped me to have that focus and do something meaningful and positive. I wasn't just drifting along you know without purpose the purpose for me was really important to make sure that I was giving back and contributing something meaningful uh, to the profession again. So one of the questions I've been asking uh, recently I haven't asked everyone but I think I'm going to from now on is how did you celebrate? My PhD? Yeah so when you finished how did you celebrate? Well it's interesting you say that because when I actually walked down the aisle to collect my award, you know, when you've got your, your fancy pants gown on and all that, and you uh, go and collect your PhD in your fancy hat and you walk up the pr- procession with everybody, I was two days before giving birth. So um, I waddled my way <laughs> down and my picture with me holding my PhD, I, you can't see it, but I'm huge. I'm hugely pregnant. And I actually think I was probably in early labour because I, I felt nauseous. I felt, you know, oh, no. out, out of body experience kind of thing, which was really unusual for me. So I celebrated by having my daughter. That's hard to beat. 
Yeah. So <laughs> two days, two days later, I have my daughter, and um, yeah, had had a beautiful time with her, knowing that my PhD was done and I could start something new after um, maternity leave. And just focus purely on her. Yeah. That's it was really nice. That's brilliant. Yeah. So I see that you've got your own um, blog site as well, which I'll connect to when we um, post this out and, and to this and, and everything like that. So what was that because you wanted an outlet to just be able to use these kind of like high energy times that you started writing that? Because it's called quite appropriately, you kind of refer to as the academic midwife, which I totally adore. Yeah. Well, that was kind of a persona I created for myself. I um, yeah, I wasn't kind of, I was quite unconfident at the beginning of my PhD, thinking I was a bit of, you know, imposter syndrome coming in. What am I doing this? I don't know anything. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I just want to share ideas. But I found myself helping other midwives and other students um, start to write their own stuff, start to do their own academic stuff. And and people were kind of like, you know, you really, you're really able to simplify things for me, like put things in simple ways. And that's really useful. And, I was just, and that was the feedback I kept getting. Um, so I was like, well, actually, it's really important that loads of people get involved with midwifery. And I, and I got people saying to me, oh, you're not a real midwife then. You're not uh-huh. a midwife anymore. You're an academic. And I was like, no, I am a midwife. M- midwifery underpins absolutely everything I do. I'm a midwife. I'm a registered midwife, um, NMC panelist, etc. Um, I am a midwife. So the kind of academic midwife became a persona to say to people, this is a type of midwife you can be. It is a, it is a thing. It is real. Um, and it was a way for me to share tips, hints. Um, I, I found myself repeating the same thing to people. You know, this is how, this is my top tips for doing this. Yep. I was like, I'm just going to put a blog. I'm just going to write it and then send people to that link. Uh, and it was also a way for me to share ideas, share research, etc. I, I have been thinking more recently, if I do write a book <laughs> or if I do. When you do. When I do, when I write my book and when I um, perhaps start co-creating and, and kind of getting that big funding profile behind me I may switch to just Dr Sally Pizarro and I'll finally feel like I I um can can embrace my full academic self um but I quite like the idea of being a fun fun academic midwife persona that could just share funding opportunities development opportunities research this and that and the other um and and get quite quite a large following which is interesting but uh once you get busy you think oh I haven't got time for this but it's so important you have to make time to communicate um as well as do so I'm sure once this uh publication's out then we'll um you know we'll have to kind of do some kind of live Q&A or something on Facebook Instagram's one of the things I've got an Instagram page but I need someone to teach me how to maximize my opportunities there really have you got um, a, a 16 or 17 year old that you can ask because they seem to know no, three-year-old a three-year-old not quite you probably know <laughs> it is it is interesting when we're looking at home and I must admit TikTok kind of took off last year and I've, yeah. I've watched a few of them there's a couple on Twitter um that I kind of a couple of medical things that I watch but when you're looking at how social media has allowed a lot more sharing of information, um, and I think the conversation about the identity of a midwife came up on Twitter, and it was really interesting that the feed, reading that feed, and how many people said, no, you still have to be clinical, otherwise you're not. And it was it was to do with, it was actually to do with midwifery. And it was really quite sad 
to see how many people were saying, no, you still have to be kind of catching babies to be classified as a midwife. And it's like, but that's not what the council, and it was kind of, I think it started in the UK, but there was international people coming in. And it's like, but there are a variety of different midwives. When you give your registration details, you're stating for us every year when we kind of give our money over, we're stating we're confident in the area that we work in, be mm. that academia, be that research, be that um, education, um, administration, or if it's clinical. And they're all equally recognised, but there's still that perception that clinical trumps everything else. Whereas if you don't have the Yeah, so we're coming back to perceptions again, aren't we? It is. It is. So that would be that would be an interesting. There we go. There's another PhD. We're going well so far. Yeah. Um, unless someone's done it, the perception of midwives or what is a midwife? Kind of. Yeah. Like, what's the what's the professional uh, perception yeah. and the public perception? But you know, the state of the world midwifery report came out um, obviously yeah. last month ish, yeah. and yeah, May you know International Day of the Midwife wasn't it that it came out? Um, it was released the week before, but it was presented on that day. Yeah. That's it, yeah. But the, in, if you read that, it talks about midwives needing to lead, needing yep. to do this, needing to branch out, be in, be on every table, uh, be heard in every arena. Well, that's more than clinical. Yep. For sure. For sure. To do the policies, absolutely. Leadership is the policies, education. We need up to, what, seven, three quarters of a million midwives in the next kind of like 20-odd years to mm. be able to be upskilled. You need educators for that. You kind of yeah. need... Yeah, and I was really glad when I saw that and it was just kind of like there's your validation that these other mm. ones, and they're asking for clinical um, trials and they're also asking for research. So yeah, we're still having this argument though. We're still having it that if you're not at the bedside or the woman's side, you're not real. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I did enjoy my clinical practice, but but with clinical practice, I, I found that I was affecting one family at a time. But if you do research, you can affect policies, you can affect... Yeah. Um, change on that really large scale which is really exciting for me and that's not to say that anything is you know better than anything else but I think if we can stop squabbling amongst ourselves we could actually work together as yes. midwifery the profession that would be really nice wouldn't it so with all the with your PhD stuff because the the substance use is coming out of it what is kind of like some of the main things that you would like people to take out of what you did for your PhD I think I would like to see policy change um, in terms of midwife's well-being uh, or, or healthcare workforce well-being in general, being more compassionate rather than having to punish or manage ill health mm-hmm. um, from a, a monetized perspective. We're doing it from a human perspective. Um, and when people ask for help, yes, we're thinking about the public trust and the public safety, but we also need to think about midwife safety um psychological safety and physical safety and i think we also need to start thinking about putting midwives first you know everything a lot is about service and sacrifice going above and beyond your um serving the family you know that kind of thing you need to think about if we want to deliver the excellent quality high quality care that we want to deliver we cannot do that unless we put midwives first if the profession's not right if the profession's not fit for purpose um we're not going to achieve the other things to the best of our abilities um and we deliver excellence in care every day but there are things in need of address that that need to be addressed in order for us to maintain that high quality uh, and that's what i'm looking to do i think it's an old proverb that you can't pour from an empty cup 
and that if we don't kind of look after ourselves, because we will, we will, exactly, we will give to the women, we'll give to our families and we'll kind of like whatever's left over, we give to ourselves. And by that time we're too knackered to actually be able to give ourselves anything. Yeah, and I don't like this term resilience either. I really don't like it. You know, there are certain things that, that will happen in life that you can't control. But if someone's punching me in the face, I don't need to be resilient to that. I need to stop them punching me in the face. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there are some things that will happen that, we, that we're going to need to navigate through. But, but resilience, kind of putting it on the person that you either have it or you don't, or it can be learned or taught. It's something that you need to have in order to deal with things that, that happen. Um, I think this, the, the things that happen could be reduced somewhat or oh, managed in yeah. a better way. I think that's the, the right approach we need to go for. That's that, that symptomatic control as opposed to that causative treatment yeah. of stopping that cause and not yeah. treating the symptom or kind of victim blaming. It's your fault. You're not resilient enough. Whereas like, well, if this person actually stopped it or if this actually stopped, you wouldn't have any of that effect coming through whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's really important for, I think people are starting to see it more and more. And I think as compassionate leadership comes in, we'll see it more and more. But if we go from the point of view that midwives don't come to work to do things wrong, cause harm, etc. And and if we look at the reasons midwives join the profession, and again, we need this PhD done. But if we could identify why midwives come into the profession, and I've never heard anyone say they came into it to do wrong, do harm, yeah. nick drugs or whatever. <laughs> Certainly not for the money. Um, so uh, so if we can come from that angle, knowing that midwives are coming into the profession to do amazing things, that's what they want to do, that's what they're capable of, then when things go wrong, we should automatically go to, well, you know, what's the what's the causal link here? Because we know that the midwives aren't wanting to do yeah. this or doing it on purpose. So um, if we can start from that angle, then we can start to accept that that, that blame isn't really helpful in that context i agree yeah. absolutely agree thank you so much that's good that's fine I, lo I love talking to you thank you for joining us today you'll find all the links on twitter instagram and on the podcast website if you are a midwife and you would like to share your research your postgraduate studies or even the quality improvement projects you are doing now then email me at through the at gmail.com Send me a tweet or send me a DM.